You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Who was Casca speaking of when he said, He fell down in the marketplace and foamed at the mouth and was speechless? The answer, Julius Caesar. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Thomas Burns. Dr. Burns is the Director of Neuropsychology for Children's Healthcare of Atlanta at Scottish Rite Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. He is certified by the American Boards of Professional Psychology, Clinical Neuropsychology, and Professional Neuropsychology. Today we are discussing the role of the neuropsychologist in the preoperative evaluation of the patient prior to surgical treatment of epilepsy. Hi, Dr. Burns. Hi, Bill. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So, Julius Caesar, would he have been more successful if a neuropsychologist was taking care of him? I hope that he would. I think the role of the neuropsychologist has kind of emerged in the last 10 or 20 years, and hopefully we're going to continue to provide some helpful insights for the neurosurgeons and the neurologists that are treating these patients. Before we get into what you do prior to surgery, I would like to ask you a few questions about the role of neuropsychology and psychological interventions as an adjunct treatment in drug-resistant epilepsy, because that's certainly the patient population that you're seeing. Yes, yes. I understand some people are using relaxation techniques, cognitive behavioral therapy, biofeedback. Have you had any success in any of those modalities? We've used many of those treatment paradigms for kids in dealing with the seizures. However, the kids that it sounds like we're going to be discussing today on the pre-surgical side are usually the ones that have been resistant to any attempts at intervention or to control the seizures, whether it be through a psychological means or, more importantly, probably from the pharmacological end. Neurosurgery seems to be becoming a viable option for the treatment of intractable epilepsy. There's a push to operate at earlier ages. Are there enough benefits to justify this? Yes. The children that are, are typically uh, candidates for surgery are intractable, are seizing multiple times in a given day. So there's not only the effects that the seizures are having organically on the brain, but then there's also the side effects from the medications or the anti-epileptic drugs that are prescribed. Often the children that we see, they are on multiple medicines, so there's sometimes combined effects where they may be lethargic or they're having difficulties with attention. So the issues that present themselves are primarily generalized across all aspects of their life. It can be adaptive behavior as well as academics that are suffering as a result of the seizures. Could you be more specific in terms of the neuropsychological morbidities that you see in chronic, especially the temporal lobe epilepsy? In the adult research that we've been able to follow over time, you can see declines in measures of cognitive function, uh, most typically assessed through intellectual testing. So you'll see IQ drop on, let's say, an adolescent who goes into adulthood and they may, 20 years worth of being on Depakote or Dilantin or some anti-epileptic medication, you can see that they often will have declines in their estimated levels of intellect. So there is a push to begin looking at surgical options because it's the only option we have to date that's a cure for these seizures. Is there any effect on either visual perception or motor skills? I know intelligence, memory you mentioned are things that are affected. How about other sensory functions? Yes, it can affect all of the above, depending on the location of the seizures. In large part, what the neuropsychologists are asked to do at a pre-surgical assessment is to first do an assessment that covers all of those domains, from verbal and language skills to visual-spatial, sensory and motor skills, and then be able to 
correlate that data with some of the neurological evidence that we have, whether it be an MRI scan that looks at the structural integrity of the brain, uh, the EEGs looking at the electrical communication across the brain. Uh, I'll look at some of the more newer technologies that look at whether it be PET scans or SPEC scans that are looking at the metabolic changes that occur as a result of the seizures. And then it's combination and a team of, of people at, at Children's. We have a a team of from the surgeons, all of the neurologists, all the way down to the techs that are present at the conference. And we take all of those variables into account before a surgical option is, is the decision is made to pursue that. Are there findings on some of your preoperative testing or evaluation that would disqualify a child from the surgical treatment? There have been many cases where We've either delayed surgery or we've decided not to go forward with surgery, and some of them can include things like depression. If there's a child that's seriously depressed, a history of suicidal ideation, given the nature of, let's say, a temporal lobe resection, the maladaptive effects that could have following surgery, those are cases that we've often tended to try other options, whether it be another medication or to look at something like a vagal nerve stimulator or or some alternative treatment. There are cases where the cognitive scores also come into question with respect to how much of a resection that is going to be completed by the neurosurgeon. For example, in the testing, if we are able to correlate that the language areas are affected and we can then later identify that those language areas are adjacent to the actual seizure point that's causing these seizures, we may be much more conservative in the resection than we would be if it was located on the other side of the brain. I'd like to come back to that in a second. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Thomas Burns. We're discussing the role of the neuropsychologist in the preoperative evaluation of a patient prior to neurosurgery for intractable epilepsy. You mentioned vagal nerve stimulator. What does that do? The vagal nerve stimulator is a device that's placed subcutaneous, very similar to a heart pacemaker under the skin, usually on the side of the chest. And what that device is, is primarily a battery. And that battery provides a pulse that is connected via two leads or wires that go to the vagus nerve on the left side of your neck, right near the internal carotid arteries. And it's an outpatient procedure that can be done in one day. You go home the same day. And it provides a pulse to this vagus nerve, which has proven to decrease seizures in adults. I think the FDA approval is for the age of 13 and above. Uh, we actually have implanted children as young as the age of 4 and 5 with the VNS. And when would you use that versus surgery? When we can't localize the seizures to one area and it's more generalized, or if they're not a candidate. Uh, the VNS is not a cure, but it's been shown in many cases to reduce the seizures up to 50%. When we spoke earlier... You mentioned some specific functional testing that you do, one of which is called WADA. Tell our guests and our audience what WADA stands for and what's involved with that kind of testing. Sure. The WADA is named after a neurologist, June WADA, who created the procedure, and it was an effort to identify where a patient's language was uh, lateralized in the brain. So what we're attempting to find out is if they're ability to speak and understand language is primarily processed on one side versus the other of the brain. Most kids and adults have language on the left side, specifically right-handers 
typically have the dominance on the left side for language. Uh, what this procedure entails is to place a catheter in the femoral artery of the leg, and just like a, many of the cardiac procedures, whether it's a balloon or a, or a stent that's placed, they travel through the arterial system up to the internal carotid arteries. And then at the bifurcation, they're able to place the catheter tip so that they can put dye in for imaging. Usually there's an arteriogram that's done first to make sure that the neuroanatomy or the vascular system in the brain is what we expect. And then after that, they provide a dose of sodium amytal, which is a medication that anesthetizes that area of the brain. So in effect, once that sodium amytal is administered, uh, the neuropsychologist has about seven minutes to complete the testing that looks at language, looks at memory function before the, the half-life of the medication wears off. This is done in the hospital, but the patient does go home that day, so it's really considered an outpatient procedure. And we do both sides of the brain, and what this will do is it mimics what the child will look like if we were to resect that portion of the brain. The area that's anesthetized is usually the area that we're looking at resecting. And we can see how that person will function if they did not have that area of the brain there. Is language the only thing that is tested by this particular test? Language and memory are the two primary areas that we're looking at. And, and this is in the temporal lobe. So we're often looking at what side they're most dominant. And sometimes you can have children that have bilateral representation or unilateral where it's one side. Is the child awake and responding to stimuli? Yes. The child is awake the entire time. It requires a a fair amount of preparation prior to make sure that they're not anxious when they go into the procedure. We actually do a kind of a, a practice procedure days before they come into the hospital so that they're more comfortable with going through it. Are the results accurate? Results are very accurate. Uh, we've been able to, in many cases, feel better about going forward with the surgery, particularly if the focus of epilepsy is on the side that the language isn't. If the language is on the same side that we've already identified the seizures to be located on, then we often go through a whole list of other procedures, one which is cortical mapping, to map out where that language actually exists. Other than the cortical mapping, which involves an invasive procedure, are there any non-invasive procedures we haven't discussed that you'd like to bring to the forefront? There is a procedure we do now uh, that was experimental and much more research-driven in years past. Um, this past year, it's become a clinical tool that we use, and that's the functional MRI. Uh, that's a tool that gets at the same, uh, we're trying to answer the same questions, which is uh, what side of the brain is language lateralized to? To a lesser extent, memory. We have not been able to get as consistent results with memory function. But in this scenario, uh, the patient is placed in the, uh, we have a 3.0 Tesla scanner that they are placed into just like they would get a routine MRI. But what this procedure, the functional MRI, will do is it enables the neuropsychologist to integrate with the radiologist and ask the child to perform different language tasks while they're being scanned. And the procedure that's done, it actually looks at oxygenation levels that change while that patient is undergoing these language, uh, what we call paradigms or tests that they're given. And we are able to then localize where that language is being processed. Are there any new tests that are coming up on the horizon? There are new tests that we are trying to integrate right now in, from our research um, areas into clinical practice, one of which is we have a dense array EEG, which is a new device that enables us to get more specific with regards to where the seizures are coming from. Right now, the challenge that we have at Children's is to be able to take all this technology 
and to pair them together. So you'll hear co-registration often in our conferences. We co-register the spec scans over MRIs. We're trying to co-register fMRIs with the structural MRI. When you say co-register, is that like superimposing the results? Yes. So, for example, on our CISCOM procedure, a child gets a spec scan right after they have a seizure, and that's superimposed on an MRI scan so that you're able to highlight structurally where that area is that's metabolically having problems. Well, the time has gone by so quickly. I'd like to thank Dr. Thomas Burns, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing the neuropsychological evaluation of the patient prior to neurosurgical treatment of intractable epilepsy. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. I wish you good day and good health.